Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Molly Greeley about her latest novel, Marvelous. I interviewed Molly back in 2021, when her second Austin-based novel, The Heiress, appeared. You can find that conversation by searching for her name wherever you get your podcasts. This time she has gone in a quite different direction, to the glittering court of 16th century France under the control of Queen Catherine de' Medici. There she explores the origins of the story we know as Beauty and the Beast. Marvelous begins, in a sense, with the story's ending. We'll talk about that in a moment. But because so much of the contribution here is bringing the well-known fairy tale down to earth, I'm going to alter my usual reading to focus on the author's note, which appears before the text. In the Chateau de Blois hangs a portrait of a girl. She is forever eight years old and crowned with flowers, with lace about her throat. Her face is covered all over in hair, and her painted hands hold the story with which she was born. Don Pietro, a wild man discovered in the Canary Islands, was conveyed to His Most Serene Highness Henri, the King of France, and from there came to His Excellency the Duke of Parma, from whom came I, Antonietta, and now I can be found nearby at the court of Lady Isabella Polavicina, the Honorable Marchesa of Saragna. The story held by the girl in the painting is almost certainly familiar to you, though you may not recognize it in the words above. The story has changed, you see, rather dramatically over the years, the centuries. When it was finally written down and bound in leather, it had already become something else, a tale thick with magic, the sort wielded by witches and fairies in their shadowed hollows, by magicians in their towers. The very air in the version you likely know hums with this magic. It eddies around the ankles of the two people who inhabit the story, the animal husband and his beautiful bride. He is fearsome or noble, depending upon the telling, sometimes both at once, a marvel of contradictions in appearance and temperament. She is always beautiful, dutiful, good, perhaps courageous, if you squint. They are the only two people who inhabit the story, the only two people in the castle in the forest, the castle that does not exist as usual castles exist, on this plain, dug solid into the earth, built of stones and mortar and the good honest labor of muscles and minds. The castle in the story you probably know is insubstantial, a dream world that comes and goes as it wishes, its stones so much milkweed fluff. The usual rules do not apply in this castle. A man lost might stumble upon it, his toes purpling with cold, might wade through snowdrifts up the great curving stairs, past gargoyles half-buried by the storm, and rose-bushes heavy with blossoms, bold with red, despite the season. He might find a meal and respite there, might be served wine and soup by servants made of wind. If he leaves and tries to return, he will not find the castle again, for it will be gone, entirely vanished, the forest closing around, trees pulling up their roots like tentacles, like feet and moving upon them to crowd their trunks together, 
to hide the emptiness where the castle briefly rested. But there is no history here, no weight. All is gossamer. The witch or fairy or magician transforms a man into a beast, and love transforms him back. In and out of forms, as the castle in which he imprisons himself slips in and out of time and earth space. None of it is real, but the girl in the painting, and her parents, who are centered in the story you know, they were real. And now, please join me in welcoming Molly Greeley. Hi, Molly. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me again. Oh, it was entirely my pleasure. Thank you. I'm guessing the painting that I described in my introduction is the ultimate inspiration for this novel. Is that true? And if so, how did you come across it? And if not, what did make you want to write Marvelous? Um, actually, yes, it was not the painting that I first discovered. Um, it was during a Google search for something completely different. Um, I was looking up a date that I needed to double check for um, for edits for my second book, The Heiress. And it was some sort of crazy serendipity. Pedro and his family were included in the search results as, you know, the true story behind Beauty and the Beast, um, although they had nothing to do with what I had Googled. And so I was completely intrigued, and I ended up forgetting completely about my edits for maybe an hour or so as I ended up kind of diving down this rabbit hole. And um, I just remember I was sitting in, it, it was with a friend who was also working. We were both sitting in a cafe, and I kind of emerged from this frenzy of, you know, quick research and turning to my friend and just saying, I think I found the subject for my next novel. It is wonderful. And I Googled them, too, after I read the book. And they have all these wonderful pictures on Google. I, I don't know, Wikipedia, Wikimedia, um, which is, I guess, understandable under the circumstances. But I was really surprised, uh, given how long ago it was, that, that you could find all this information. Yeah, um, there is a surprising amount. And I think some of the reason for that is that um, they were studied. I mean, they were um, looked at by a physician at the time who wrote about them in his, um, you know, his kind of just book about human anomalies, sort of. And then um, they were included in various, like, books of, or not, books of, and then cabinets of curiosities, which is a thing that lots of noble people kept back then. They would keep pictures and descriptions of odd animals unusual people, um, all sorts of things. And usually they ended up categorized, you know, with animals rather than with people in these, in these works. Um, but I think people had a fascination uh, with the unusual back then. Yes, they did. I mean, there's a famous museum in St. Petersburg that was started by Peter the Great called the Kunstkamera, which is just full of all these things. Um, it, it's assumed that the original Petrus Gonsalves had a gen genetic physical condition called hypertrichosis. I hadn't heard of it before. Can you explain what it is? Yes. So, yes, it is um, a genetic um, inherited condition that causes excessive hair growth. Um, there are multiple types of hypertrichosis. Um, some cause, like, long, pale hair to grow. Others cause very short, dark hair to grow. And depending on the type that someone has, um, there might be more or less hair on one part of the face or the body. Um, but as a generalization, it is a condition that causes a lot of excess hair all over the face and body um, with the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet usually not affected. The first person we meet in the novel is Catherine, uh, not Catherine de Medici, but your novel's heroine, The Beauty, in your version of the tale. 
What made you want to start with her husband's death? Uh, there were a couple of reasons for that choice. Um, honestly, I went through quite a few drafts trying to find the form that I felt worked best for the book. And I wanted readers, I ended up wanting readers to understand from the beginning that Pedro and Catherine ultimately had a loving marriage. Um, I didn't want them, I didn't want readers to feel that, you know, that I guess that it was a novel mostly about trauma or the unkindnesses that people inflict upon each other, although obviously that does come into it. But um, because of Pedro's difficult early life, I wanted to make it clear up front that it is also a story about love. Um, and it also helped me or allowed me to keep um, including details about the family's life once they moved to uh, Capatamonte in Italy, because I want, there were certain aspects of their life um, once they made that move and even after Pedro's death that I wanted to include, but I didn't want to compromise on the ending that I had already kind of envisioned for the book um, by having a whole long section after his death about just the rest of the family. Right. No, I understand that. I think it works very well. And as you say, it, it introduces us right away to the, the knowledge that Despite what we see in the beginning, Catherine does eventually love Pedro um, and vice versa. So we then move to Pedro's childhood on Tenerife in the Canary Islands. Set the stage for us, please. What is his background and what is his life like at that point in time? Um, at this time, he's about 10 years old. Um, he's living on Tenerife with his adopted grandmother um, and her biological grandson. Um, he was abandoned by his biological parents. He's never met them. And so, um, but he's ended up with this very loving family. Um, although they're relatively poor, they, they care about each other, you know, a lot. And it's really, it's not a bad life for him. Um, he has freedom, you know, he, he can run all over town. He goes to the ocean to gather shell, shellfish for dinner. The only, you know, the negative aspect of his life there, aside from the fact that despite the fact that he had freedom was that, other people did not understand him and were sometimes afraid of him just because of his very unusual appearance. So even, you know, even adults sometimes were, were cruel to him. Um, and, you know, children, you know, especially little boys were sometimes, you know, mocking um, or threw things at him. Um, so, you know, his life was kind of a mixed bag, I suppose, his early life. He was, you know, fairly alone, but he does have the support of people who love him very much. And he had the freedom at that point to live, pretty much as he wished to. There's already a religious slash cultural conflict here because Isabel, the woman who takes in Pedro, belongs to the indigenous people of the Canary Islands, the Guanches. Who were they and how does her heritage affect Pedro? They were largely wiped out when the Spanish conquered, um, which, you know, happened um, not that, I mean, only a few decades before Pedro's birth. And so, the Spanish conquered the Canary Islands and the indigenous culture was largely, you know, taken away. Um, they ended up um, killing or enslaving many of the indigenous people. Others, like I have Isabel, um, as, as I believe, or I have happened to Isabel in the story, um, intermarry with the Spanish. And so, you know, even the, the language and, that was spoken, the religion that was practiced, you know, were at that point forbidden. Um, Isabel is, you know, forced to convert to Catholicism. She's forced to change her name. And there's a lot of trauma around that. 
Um, so unfortunately, because because so much of the culture, the you know, the knowledge about the culture was lost, um, we don't have a huge amount left. There's some food that you know is still eaten, a few spoken words. Um, there is a whistled language on a, on one of the islands that is still um, used, which is really interesting. Um, but we don't unfortunately have nearly as much knowledge about their lives as we should. Um, there are caves on Tenerife that were clearly used as like resting places for the dead. There were others that were um, possibly dwellings um, or used for religious worship because there were some idols found there. Um, and the religion was, you know, almost definitely polytheistic, but, you know, again, so much was lost. Um, and I think, you know, this affects Pedro in a couple of ways because for one thing, both he and Isabel um, are outsiders, which can certainly be bonding. Um, but it also informs the way that he feels about the Catholic church because Isabel was forced to convert and even her birth name was taken away from her. He knows that she still kind of secretly in her own way worships the gods of her childhood. And so I think that makes him more sensitive than many people at the time to the fact that there's more than one way of imagining the divine. Um, and that maybe, you know, the church's word wasn't the be all end all, um, which is, you know, something that he kind of continues to struggle with all of his life. He's captured, uh, exactly by whom remains unclear, uh, again, when he's around the age of 10. What happens there? At that time, pirates um, actually did raid those islands periodically. They took treasure, um, they sometimes took people. So it was, it's pirates who steal him um, from the beach and he's, when he's there alone. Um, and because he was such an unusual looking person, it seemed likely to me that he would be an obvious target because um, such people were unfortunately kind of commodities at the time. He ends up at the French court uh, after being hauled around and treated as a curiosity, even caged like an animal. What causes King Henri uh, II of France to take an interest in Pedro? Um, their historical reports were that the king was, you know, interested. He was, you know, delighted with his, you know, the gift of this little hairy boy that, as you said, was brought in a cage. Um, but that he wasn't, you know, invested in Pedro until he realized that he could speak. Um, and that um, was interesting because Pedro likely would have spoken Spanish, as I have him speak in the novel. And uh, Henri II was actually a captive of the Spanish, along with his older brother when he was a boy. Um, and they were forced to speak Spanish. They weren't allowed to speak French when they were captives. And so he actually would have been able to communicate with Pedro. Um, and, you know, once he realized that Pedro could speak, he decided that he would not be kept in a cage. He would be educated and treated um, very much like a noble, you know, like a young, a young nobleman, a noble boy. It's King Henri who adapts Pedro's name to the Latin Petrus, so the French Pierre, uh, to which the court adds the nasty epithet uh, Sauvage, Pierre the Savage. How does Petrus adapt to his new situation in the years between his capture and his marriage? Um, so, yes, he is, as I said before, he's educated um, at the king's command, and he learns quickly, and this gives him a sense of self-worth. Um, and I think he, he uses his intelligence kind of as a shield, um, it becomes a large part of his self-identity. Um, 
he's very proud of his education and he uses it to distance himself from the, you know, savage or wild or animal like image that other people have of him when they just see his face. He's alone at the court for quite a while, right? As I remember, he's about 34 when he finally marries. Yes, he's alone. He does um, have one good friend, one close friend, um, uh, Ludovico Gonzaga, who is a real person, but I invented their friendship for the for the novel. Um, and uh, But other than that, I mean, he takes part in court life. Um, you know, they used to have these very elaborate... Um, masks or um, and pantomimes, like not pantomimes, but they put on these like theatrical productions um, that the whole court would take part in. And so he was, you know, he would have to play the savage man trying to steal the young woman or whatever. And he played his part, um, but he was, he kind of, he wanted to keep himself away from the other oddities, for lack of a better word, at court, other people who are unusual looking. Um, he did not really want to be seen as one of them, um, partly because he was singled out by the king for his education. Um, so he really only has the one close friend. Yes, I I suspect many listeners know this, uh, especially if they're interested in historical fiction, but it is a very different attitude towards people uh, that you see at the court. I mean, he, there are dwarves and there are uh, fools and there are people who are basically kept around as entertainment uh, because of their differences. And so Pierre, is, you can see why he doesn't want to be in that category, especially given his experience before he got to the court. Yeah. Um, and it seemed, I mean, just because he was, he was singled out in a way that the others generally were not the other people who were unusual. Um, it seemed to me very possible. And also because in his uh, biography, um, you know, his biographer talks about how it seems that he was very proud of his education. And so it, it made sense to me that he would kind of want to hold himself aloof from that. Although, you know, he very well might have found a lot of close friendships among <laughs> among people who would have understand understood what he was going through. Um but, you know, he wasn't fully accepted by the rest of the court either. Um, so it was he was kind of in this in-between world, all on his own. The marriage itself is arranged by Henri's widow, uh, Catherine de' Medici. Introduce us to her namesake, the young girl who weds Petrus. How does she end up in this situation? Um, so just like um, Beauty in the fairy tale, uh, Catherine's father was a merchant, um, and he felt, you know, fell on hard times. He backed the wrong ship. And uh, prior to this, he had been a draper to the queen and to her ladies. And so when the queen gets it into her head to marry and, you know, try to breed, basically, her court wild man, she offers to pay Catherine's dowry and um, Catherine's father's remaining debts um, if he will agree to marry his daughter to Pedro. So, I mean, she's essentially sold <laughs> to um and to pay her father's debts and she's very young she's 16 uh which it's not an age gap that was as uncommon then as it might be now it didn't raise eyebrows in the same way but still that's a huge uh, difference it's a huge difference and you know i think young people back then obviously were given 
different or more responsibility than you know teenagers tend to be now but i can't imagine that they were not still you know young people who had who probably had you know their own ideas of what their lives would be like and so um for catherine you know this is a, a difficult adjustment um to suddenly be thrust into court life with this much older very unusual looking husband well, especially since girls were so sheltered then. Even a merchant's daughter would be really, um, you know, restricted in who she could hang out around with or with any knowledge of men, basically, that wasn't supervised. Yes, exactly. And, I mean, you know, it depended on who was on the throne, but, you know, the French court could be a fairly, um, I don't know, body place. <laughs> and so it was... Um, I imagine it was kind of a shock to a, you know, a very sheltered girl to just, you know, end up in this, in this environment that um, she never expected to be in among people who, you know, may not, may have looked down on her because she wasn't nobility, um, where she didn't have any friends. She didn't know anybody. Um, Yeah. And to be, you know, introduced to court as the wife of, someone that, you know, some people saw as more animal than human. The couple don't even meet until their wedding day, so it's perhaps not surprising, even without Patrice's unusual appearance uh, and that age gap, that the two of them don't get on at first. What can you tell us about those early days? Um, Yes, so they definitely have trouble um, communicating at the beginning. Catherine, like I said, was, is just overwhelmed. Um, she doesn't have anyone to guide her. And, you know, of course, at this point, they're living at a time when literally thousands of people in France alone had been burned for being werewolves, um, which sounds preposterous now, but it wasn't seen as ridiculous then. And, you know, Pedro's appearance would have brought to mind um, a lot of the superstitions of the day. Um, you know, people who were born with any kind of unusual appearance, many times it was believed that the child's mother must have done something terrible, like maybe slept with the devil to cause, you know, to cause these traits. And so um, Catherine is, you know, a little bit frightened of her new husband. Um, And Pedro doesn't help matters much because he is, you know, understandably afraid that she's going to just reject him. (laughs) And so he kind of holds himself very much apart from her. Um, he doesn't try to get to know her as a person at first, and he doesn't allow her to see who he really is. Um, and so there are a lot of misunderstandings and even distrust between them at the beginning. And yet they both are expected to, you know, be husband and wife They're They have to appear at court together. They have to sleep together because the whole point of this is that the queen wants, um, Pedro to have children and so it's it's a very kind of awkward and tumultuous beginning to their relationship. When I read the book, I did not actually make the connection to werewolves. Um, and it's funny because I was reading another novel later where it was very explicit that, that uh, there were these many trials of people who were suspected of being werewolves, even in places like France where you don't think of it as being so common. But yes, of course, that is an element. And there's this kind of bizarre thing that you're hinting at, and we won't go into it too much because we don't want to give away spoilers, but Catherine de' Medici really wants these, I mean, 
it's like she's breeding her dwarves. You know, she she really wants to these children of Pedro's uh, to be like him. They, they, she wants them to have the hair and be, you know, what she considers to be half bestial. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very it, the whole thing is just very very strange that. Um, that, you know, people at the time, royalty at the time, felt that they had the right to, to I mean, really, it, I, breeding is the only word I can think of, because it really, they, you know, Catherine and Pedro were bred. They were, they were you know, forced into intimacy in order to create children um, with, a, with, the under, with the hope that those children would, would have certain desirable traits. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, honestly, I can't imagine a much more difficult beginning to a marriage as a teenage girl, <laughs> um, or as, or as a man for that matter, who didn't have a choice in the matter, didn't get to choose, you know, the wife that he wanted and might be frightened that, you know, any children that he has that do look like him might be treated just the way he is. We know that, that they do find love. And so what is it about their characters that lets them eventually make this adjustment? Um, I think that at his heart, Pedro is a very kind man, and that comes out eventually, <laughs> um, that, you know, a lot of his aloofness is self-preservation um, and not who he really is. And Catherine is really quite open-minded for the time, um, you know, despite her fears about him. She's determined from the beginning to try to see him as a man and not as a werewolf, basically. Um and later on, she proves, you know, to be much stronger than she first seems to be, you know, stronger of character. Um, and both of them also know what it is to be bought and sold. I mean, you know, Pedro was actually brought to a slave market when he was a boy and given as a gift to the French king. And but and Catherine's experiences, I guess, you know, the more um, socially acceptable, you know, being you know sold off as a wife essentially, um, but because there is an exchange of money in both cases, and neither one of them really had a lot of agency or choice at the time, um, they have this recognition of a shared experience. And but the, I guess the choice that they do have is to make the best of the life they've been given together. Um, but it's not until, I mean, again, not to not to go too far into it, I suppose, but like they they're really first united when their first child is born like that's when they first start to see each other in, into each other's heads and hearts um you know, this mutual worry that and love for this baby that they have created um gives them they, they kind of drop their shields um around each other and start to really talk to each other for the first time one of the things that i don't know that it contributes to them it, in some ways it probably makes it harder for them but I I know it's it's something that I knew about because I've been studying the 16th century for a long time. But I remember when I was reading, I suddenly thought, my goodness, you know, you forget the impact of this. But because mail is so slow and inconvenient and untrustworthy and getting messages from one place to another is so difficult, when Catherine gets to the court, she if essentially that severs her entire contact with her birth family. And so she's really alone in that marriage uh, in a way. And Pedro, of course, is alone because he's been kidnapped and, and brought to France. Um, so they really do only have each other. Yeah. 
they, they that's exactly it. Um, and luckily, you know, both of them turn out to be you know, decent people in the end. So they, they have someone, you know, someone else who is a good person to go through life with. Um, but um, I get it's hard in the beginning for either of them to trust that the other person is going to be someone they can rely on. Um, and so, so there is a lot of isolation for both of them at the beginning. And, you know, that's why Catherine, um, you know, kind of has dreams of befriending other people at court um, because, because Pedro is not, you know, there for her at the beginning and she doesn't quite know how to draw him out or how to be there for him yet. And she takes refuge in the church. Yes, very much so. Um, I think because, you know, they were expected to go um, to Mass on a daily basis, and that was something that was familiar to her. Like, I feel like that would have been the only, you know, kind of island of familiarity in this in this whole situation. Um, so the rituals and, you know, it was a daily anchoring um, for her. And who is that little girl in the portrait? Uh, the girl in the portrait is Antoinette, um, one of Pedro and Catherine's children, and she was born as hairy as Pedro. Um, but when she was about eight, she was sent um, to live with another noble family, um, which you find out, in the, you know, in the author's note. So, um, so you know, historically speaking, after she is sent away, other than this portrait, she completely disappears from the historical record. And I think because we know just we know what happened to just about all of Pedro and Catherine's other children, but Antoinette's life after she leaves her parents is kind of a mystery. And so for some reason, this, this haunted me while I was doing my research. Um, and I ended up wanting to make that a, you know, fairly big point of the story um, that she, you know, just the, that her disappearance um, was something that was um, difficult for everybody. Is there anyone I haven't asked you about or any incidents that you would really like listeners to hear about uh, that I haven't mentioned? Oh, goodness. Um, let me think. I suppose, you know, the first thing that comes to mind that I, I could have mentioned earlier when we were talking about how Pedro and Catherine came together um, was that the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre is something that plays, you know, a pretty big role in their lives early on, um, which, and for people who haven't heard of this, it was a, a really terrible thing that happened in Paris, um, between Catholics and then French Protestants who, um, had been fighting at the time and were supposed to have this kind of truce during a wedding, a Royal wedding, because a Protestant prince was marrying a the Catholic princess and, um, Somehow, and yet, and historians still argue over exactly how this happened. Um, the Catholics ended up slaughtering Protestants, you know, not only in Paris but throughout the countryside over the next several days and weeks. Um, and it's this is one of those things that, um, historically speaking, just the the tensions, the, the religious tensions between the Catholics and the Huguenots were featured pretty prominently. Um, in, you know, court life at the time. So that's something that um, comes into the story quite a bit. Um, other than that, I don't, I 
don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> There's something really special about this story. It's haunting. It's beautifully written. And it really drew me in and, and pulled me along. Um, and I think my usual last question, or almost last question, has a particular relevance here. What would you like readers to take away from Marvelous? Oh, I suppose um, I would like readers to take away, you know, the, well, it's very much, um, I suppose, the message of the more modern takes on the Beauty and the Beast fairy tale, at least, that what's inside, um, you know, of a person has nothing to do with what they look like on the outside. And that, um, you know, that love does not have to what is it coming at the eyes um, necessarily either. Um, but it's also just about how we treat people who are different, um, how we treat people um, who in some way, maybe for whatever cultural reason are considered to be lesser um, that, you know, this is something that still does happen today. Um, it's not quite as, uh, I guess, obvious in our culture, but um but we, we kind of live in this very image obsessed culture still. And it's just kind of interesting to me how, how there are parallels um, between modern day society and, and with, you know, it's filters and it's kind of emphasis on perfection on physical perfection. Um, and with the, you know, 16th century when people who, you know, looked unusual were kept as, you know, human marvels at court. This novel has just come out, I mean, really just a couple of days before we're talking, uh, for which I congratulate you. Uh, are you already working on something new? I am. Um, it's been slow going, and I have been getting distracted by other projects as well. Um, but right now, the main thing that I'm working on is um, set in Germany in the um, 13th century. Um, but I don't, I have not yet even showed it to my agent. <laughs> so um, it's all been a little more slow going than I would like, but it's getting there. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Molly, and I hope the new project goes well. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Molly Greeley about Marvelous. Find out more about her at mollygreeley.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.